All right, welcome to the first of its kind, world-changing manufacturers network. Lisa Ryan has her ears to the ground and her heart in the game. Get ongoing education and new connections right here with Lisa and the manufacturers network. Buckle your seat, listen, and spread the word. Here's Lisa. Hey, it's Lisa Ryan, and welcome to the Manufacturers Network podcast. My guest today is Rosemary Coates. Rosemary is the founder and executive director of the Reshoring Institute, a 501c3 nonprofit and nonpartisan organization focusing on expanding U.S. manufacturing. She's also the president of Blue Silk Consulting, a supply chain management consulting firm. Ms. Coates has been a management consultant for 30 plus years, helping over 80 global supply chain clients worldwide. In the early 2000s, she assisted many companies source products from China and set up operations there. But now she helps companies with their global operations strategy, determining what products to manufacture in each market, including what can be manufactured in America. Rosemary, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So share with us a little bit about your background and really kind of that that journey that I alluded to in your bio there. Okay, sure. So I've had a long history of being in the manufacturing environment from uh, after I graduated college, uh, working at solar turbines in San Diego, all the way to graduate school, uh, where I got recruited out of grad school to Hewlett Packard in Silicon Valley. That's where I live now. After that, was went into management consulting at KPMG, and I was a partner in another firm. And I've been doing management consulting and software implementations in the supply chain sectors for, for many years. I worked for SAP for five years as a managed their business consulting group in the West. And at one point, I was so interested in China. And of course, you may know that in the early 2000s, everyone was going to China because the market was opening after China ascended to the WTO. And it was a low-cost environment, and everyone's competitors were going, and everybody was going to China. So, And I was very interested, had always been interested in China and done a few projects there. So I decided to break out on my own and start a consulting firm that was focused on helping companies in global supply chains, particularly in Chinese manufacturing. And I did that for about 15 years, helped lots of companies shift their operations to China, did a lot of um, global expansion projects and, and, and so forth, which was really fun to do. And then along came the 2014 presidential election when Barack Obama and Mitt Romney were China bashing like crazy. And, and I'm thinking, holy cow, I can't tell anybody what I do for a living. This is awful, you know, <laughs> um, that plus, plus I think, you know, um, shutting down so many factories in America, and I did a lot of that, just really started to get to me. And, and I started to feel like this is just not the right direction to go. We shouldn't be shipping all of our capability and manufacturing overseas. It just it just started really weighting heavily on me. 
And so, and at the same time, because of the presidential election and all the China bashing that was going on, some of my clients started talking to me about the potential for bringing some manufacturing back. And that really sparked this whole idea of reshoring. So I uh, gathered uh, some of the people, the top managers that worked for me together, and we designed a process and approach for determining where in the world you should manufacture. So helping companies understand if they could move manufacturing back to the U.S. or if they should add additional countries and, you know, all kinds of decision points. And it was pretty obvious that reshoring was going to become a trend. I felt strongly that clients were interested in moving back to America if they could make an economic case to do so. And so out of that grew the Reshoring Institute. We incubated under the University of San Diego. Um, they have a, a big supply chain program there, and I'm on the board at USD. That's also my alma mater from graduate school. <clears throat> and so I asked them if they would help us get started, and they were, all, you know, of course, very helpful. And so for three years, we incubated the Reshoring Institute at the University of San Diego and took graduate student interns to help us do the research and sort of get our sea legs. And then we went nationwide. And so now today, the Reshoring Institute is where I spend most of my time. Uh, and we're a nonprofit, so we do all kinds of global supply chain strategy work, uh, consulting work, small consulting projects, some big global projects. We're working on a giant project for the state of New York right now in manufacturing. And, you know, we help analyze and determine and implement manufacturing projects with the intention to try to expand manufacturing in America. And so that, that's where we are today. And we're associated now with about 15 universities all across the nation. We take graduate student interns that are very often scary smart. And um, we teach them about manufacturing. And obviously, they're going to be the leaders of the future. And uh, they help us with our research. So what would you say the things that you've seen, because we've heard so much about manufacturing coming back to America and China is certainly not as cheap as it used to be when it came to any of their manufacturing processes. So it's not like they're even saving as much money as they used to. But besides the cost savings, what are some of the biggest benefits that you've been able to show manufacturers about coming back to the United States? Yeah, well, you're right about cost increase, although that is not the primary driver. It still um, wages in China are maybe a quarter of what they would be in the Western world. Um, today's environment, and you know, we saw some financial incentives. So the Tax Reform Act of 2017 was helpful to manufacturers, got a big tax break, but it didn't really drive much manufacturing back. It was just a tax break. The trade war, um, you know, the intention was that it would drive manufacturing back to the U.S. And, and instead, it just caused manufacturers to absorb more costs because they were paying the, the tariffs on imported parts and even finished goods coming back into the U.S. So that didn't really drive any manufacturing back. Although, you know, there was certainly talk and we were we were kind of moving along, getting projects here and there and doing our research. The pandemic was a big difference, made a big hmm. difference. And that's because it introduced risk. So, you know, the 
the economic incentives were sort of there all along, but risk is a whole nother aspect. And a lot of companies recognize that, um, you know, it was time to, to think about their strategies more in depth and potentially bring manufacturing back to America. Now, I think there's, um, because of the risk, that's certainly top of mind with most executives, potentially mitigating that risk through manufacturing close in the U.S. or either in Mexico, sometimes Canada. And so that's that's one aspect of it. Of course, the economics have changed pretty significantly. Logistics costs. Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I have talked to, in, in for the project we're working on with the state of New York, we're interviewing 50 companies in manufacturing. And one after another, after another, tells that logistics costs are just choking them. You know, cost to get a container from Shanghai to LA used to be a thousand bucks. Now it's as high as $15,000. I mean, the costs are exponential. I mean, most most companies I think are paying at least three or four times more. And so, you know, that's a big issue. And that will that will straighten out eventually because it's really based on the imbalance of containers around the world. And once that gets straightened out, we'll probably see some reduction in those costs, although not back to you know 2019 rates, but I think we'll see some calming of that. Uh, but that's certainly one of the factors. Another factor is being having short cycle times. And you know, if if you have to wait six weeks to get product from China, you know, it's really hard to fill your orders fast. Amazon has taught us all, all right. consumers, whether industrial or personal consumers, that we want our stuff overnight, you know. Exactly. I mean, we're not going to wait six weeks. We want it in two days maximum, right? Right. And and that's driven this whole attitude of uh, shortening of cycle times in general across the industry. So having local manufacturing is helpful in that regard. You know, another aspect is engineering changes. Um, it's really hard to do those when you're at distance versus you've got an engineering problem, you get an engineer to hop on a plane and tomorrow they can be at a you know factory in Indiana or Alabama or somewhere. And, and that makes a big difference in you know how quickly we respond to the marketplace also. So well, and not only and, and not only that, but it it's like you have your suppliers local, whether it be United States, Canada, or Mexico. So it's not literally the slow boat from China. But there's also something about buying products that are made in the United States. And I know that there were um, a research that you did through the Reshoring Institute that talked about Americans' preferences for that made in the USA label. So tell us a little bit about that study and, and what you have found. Yeah, that that was it was interesting. I would say it wasn't anything that was too surprising to me since I'm working in that sector. But we we surveyed 500 people across America and we asked them some simple questions. Now, these were all age groups from from 18 to about 85, all education levels, high school graduates, all the way to PhDs men, women, all um, regions of the U.S., and we asked them some simple questions. Do you prefer to buy products made in the U.S.? If so, would you pay more for them? And if so, how much more? And um, the responses came back, you know, affirmatively, you know, somewhere around 
60 or 70% said, yes, they prefer uh, products made in the U.S. Yes, they would pay more for them. And the amount is between 10 and 20% more. So if you get an exact product from China and one made in the U.S. side by side, consumers were willing to pay 10 to 20% more for the product made in the USA. And what they indicated to us is the reason why is there is a perceived better quality of products made in the US. Now, we didn't qualify that in any way. We didn't say good, bad, and different, you know, electronics, plastics, we didn't say any of that. We just said, do you think that products made in the US are better quality? And the answer was resoundingly yes. So there, there's a perception. Now, the reason why that's very important is because if we can manufacture in the U.S. for no more than, say, 10 to 15 percent more, cost being 10 to 15 percent more, Americans perceive the quality is higher and they're willing to pay more for it. So we use that number when we're calculating the, the cost to manufacture in the U.S. versus the cost to manufacture in, in China or other low-cost countries. And we know if we can get that cost within 10 or 15 percent, we got a winner. Yeah. <laughs> we can definitely manufacture here. It's got a lot of advantages. It's faster turnaround time. It's perceived higher quality, whether it is or it isn't. It's perceived higher quality. It's faster engineering change orders. It's better logistics. It reduces your carbon footprint and on and on and on. There's a million reasons why you would want to do it. And based on that economic factor. Well, and I think the other thing that's the softer side of it is that it makes it easier for employees who want to work for a company that is made in America, that is keeping jobs here. There's that certain aplomb that comes with that. And especially when you're looking at millennials and Gen Z, the newer, the newest generations coming into the workforce, they want a company with a mission. And if that manufacturer can say, our mission is to bring you the highest quality products made right here, I think it's going to be even easier for them to attract talent. And we all know that there is not enough talent to go around right now. Yeah, that's for sure. There's a huge shortage across the board in workers. Yeah. So we call that economic patriotism. Um, so, you know, it's based on um, the value, what you're willing to pay, how you perceive companies. There's just, you know, there's a general preference among Americans to buy products that are manufactured here and to work for companies that manufacture in the U.S., which Absolutely. is wonderful. I, I think it's it's awesome. Right. I had a guest a couple of weeks ago on the podcast that was talking about, and I did, and I knew the numbers were similar, but I didn't realize they were that expansive that we have. I think China has the number one GDP uh, percentage of GDP, like at 20% of manufacturing. The U S is at 18%. And these numbers may be a little bit different. I'm going off the top of my head, but where they do it with 200 million people, we do it with 20. So our opportunity to just showcase what we do and the technology and the efficiency of American manufacturing puts every other company on the country and the planet to shame. So, you know, that's a very important point. We don't want the 23 cent an hour t-shirt production back. Right? No, no. <laughs> in Bangladesh or Myanmar or, you know, some of these really low cost countries. 
what we want to have come back is the more sophisticated, more skillful requirements and environment for manufacturing. And we want to put people back to work that make a living wage. And because if we don't, if we don't, then we have to supplement their income with welfare. You know, we don't want to create a bigger welfare state. What we want to do is bring in manufacturing jobs that are higher skilled. So they, instead of putting pegs in holes, you run the robot that puts the pegs in holes. So, you know, a robot technician is different from an unskilled laborer. So that's what we want. We want to focus on those higher tech, higher skilled jobs to bring them back because they pay a better wage and it creates better productivity for us. So, you know, when you know, sometimes we hear politicians saying, oh, you know, we want to bring all the jobs back from China. And I'm like, that's that's not what we want. You know, (laughs) we don't want all that low skilled stuff coming back. We want a more sophisticated environment and to move up the maturity curve for Industry 4.0. Wow. Now we've heard that trying to leave China can be troublesome. So what have you experienced when companies are trying their best to bring manufacturing home? Boy, that that's that's a big one, because I spent so much time in China. I'm I'm very familiar with with the craziness that can go on there, and I've had clients who said, "Okay, let's just you know pull everything out of China and move back. We think we can make the case for it. We're going to build a we're going to build a new uh, plant somewhere in the Midwest and and bring everything back." I'm like, "Whoa, I got to have a little tough conversation with the CFO," um, because first of all. And most employees in China are on employment contracts. And that means uh, that when they go to work for a company, they sign up for one or two years and they have a contract for employment. So if you close your plant, you have to pay out all those employment contracts. Surprise. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, that's a big surprise for a lot of companies. Even if you're just sourcing there and you have a dedicated production line, you may be caught in that situation. Another thing is tools and dyes, molds. Once you establish those kind of things in China, even if you think you own them, you think they're written into your contract appropriately, you're probably never getting them back for a couple of reasons. So first of all, there's a a general uh, idea, kind of a culture that they become part of the infrastructure of the factory. And to take apart the infrastructure is just not allowed. And secondly, if it's any kind of technology, the Chinese government won't allow it to be exported. So you're probably going to have to write off all your machine tools, your molds, everything, especially if you've had molds made in China, which a lot of companies do because they're maybe a tenth of the cost of a mold made in the U.S. So, But you got to leave those behind. So in terms of IP, <laughs> here you are shutting down production. And the Chinese factory has learned how to make your goods. They have your IP instructions on manufacturing. They have your molds. They have your tools, right? And to say, okay, we're going to stop making product there and move away. You've got to understand that the Chinese factory is going to continue to make your product. And they're going to maybe sell it under a slightly different name worldwide. And you're going to find yourself competing with your own your, your your former factory in China. So that's a problem. Sometimes you have to apply for permits to leave China. I mean, it's complicated and expensive and you should go into this decision with your eyes open. And, you know, we help a lot of companies in that regard, even though it's sort of bad news. 
you need to know about it. You need to know what your costs are and your risks are in, in, in leaving an environment like that. Right. Which, which brings us to exactly what you do at the Reshoring Institute and how you can help people that are listening to the podcast and may want to start considering bringing their business back to the state. So tell us a little bit about how you help your clients and then what's the best way to get in touch with you. So uh, one of the first things I would recommend is everybody go to our website. It's www.reshoringinstitute.org. Sorry, reshoringinstitute.org. I think .com will take you there too, but we're we're a nonprofit, so it's .org. Uh, we publish all of our research there. I mean, it's a very full website full of all kinds of goodies that you can look at and, and determine that. We also provide really low-cost consulting work because we're a nonprofit. Um, we have you know world-class consultants that have been in the business for 20, 30 years. I've got a, a spectacular team. And so we do consulting projects also at roughly half price of what you would get anywhere else. Um, we help do, you know, finding sources, supplier substitutions for, for foreign suppliers, for U.S. suppliers. Uh, we do factory location, you know, all kinds of design work. So, yeah, I mean, we can we can certainly help in that regard. And all of that, you can contact us through the website. It's, again, www.reshoringinstitute.org. Or um, you can contact me directly. And my email is rcoates, R-C-O-A-T-E-S, at reshoringinstitute.org. Wonderful. Well, Rosemary, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today. Thanks so much for joining me. Oh, thank you. It was a delight. I'm Lisa Ryan, and this is the Manufacturers Network Podcast. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Hey, do me a favor. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and give us a five-star rating. Also, feel free to share the podcast with your friends and colleagues so we can grow the network and connect more fantastic folks just like you. You can either go to the website at manufacturers-network.com or share the podcast on your LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or wherever you and your industry friends hang out. The bigger and faster we grow this network, the stronger and deeper community we will have. I appreciate you. Thank you.